welcome back to another exciting week of the Geek Whispers. I'm Amy Lewis. I'm Matt Brender. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we are here with a very special guest who is not only a technology leader, but also did his own tech support on Skype tonight, which was driving us all crazy. (laughs) So without further ado... Chad Sackich, welcome to the show. Yo, everybody. It is great to be here. And it's, you know what, by the way, you guys are not only great hosts, but also great longtime friends. It's fun to actually just hear your voices. Well, we have likewise missed hearing yours as well. For the one person, it's probably somebody's mom out there who doesn't know who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're up to these days? I'm a short, handsome, blonde dude uh, looking for love. No, <laughs> a happily married man. <laughs> you can see it all in my Tinder profile. <laughs> what is your title at this point, Chad? You're like Grand Poobah now. Yeah. So titles matter not, as you well know, man. Technically, I'm the president of presales at EMC, which means I am the uh, proud leader of roughly around 4,000 of my brother and sister nerds in the field. That's my day job. The night job is trying to help steer and guide EMC ventures, M&A, strategy. Periodically, I take off my EMC hat and I put on my VMware Pivotal and EMC Federation hat and try to navigate those things as well. And then in the other 24 hours of the day... (laughs) I'm really lucky to be the exec sponsor on on about four or so of our customers, which means I get to know when anything burps, as well as I get to know what's actually mattering to them in their business. Wow. You're not busy at all. (laughs) It actually answered a question we didn't ask yet, which was about, is it at this stage just something where you check your emails and that's your full-time job where that might be part of it, but there is some good diversity to the emails that you're looking at. Totally. And and by the way, more important than any of that jazz, I'm a husband and a dad of two wonderful daughters, which is another <laughs> full-time gig unto itself. Which actually leads us nicely into our first question we had for you, which is, Talk to us a little bit about life as a leader versus an individual contributor. And we get asked this a lot. I think a lot of people aspire to be a leader like yourself. We'd love to hear some of the ups, the downs, the the pros, the cons. To be honest with you, Amy, and, and again, I, I love my job and I love what I do, but there are times where it is ridiculously hard. Not just a little, but ridiculously hard. So Matt, like your joke about emails, I do get about 3,000 emails a day. <laughs> right. Uh, that, and I'm not exaggerating. We should call this episode Chad by the numbers. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so you have to get really good at filtration and sorting and being structured and flag for follow up. If you flag for follow up and you don't, it goes off into oblivion in the 3000 follow up flag for follow up emails. Right. <laughs> Amy, to answer your question, it is very hard. You know, I've heard people basically say, oh, you know, you got to strive for work life balance. Work-life balance is a bit of an illusion, you know, because it implies that you've got basically a scale with both your life on one side and your work on the other, and they're nicely balanced, right? I found that for me personally, the analogy that a great mentor to me once said is it's more like a marathon with like sprints. So it's like sprint, rest, sprint, rest, sprint, rest. So, you, you know, you do a lot of sprinting during critical periods, and then you take a week where your pace is a little bit lower. The other thing, just for what it's worth, is I think almost any senior leader, when they move into, forget even just global gigs, any gig that involves distributed team, particularly if if your role isn't a distributed team role, but a field-facing role, and you cover North America, you end up spending a lot of time on the road, right? So those sprints often involve crazy road time. Again, just to give you guys a stupid example, but it's not stupid abnormal. It's just stupid, stupid, right? Our favorite type. The week before last, I was traveling out to APJ. You might have seen my tweets on the topic. But basically, I show up to the airport on Saturday, and I have two airplane tickets. One is to Seoul, and one is to Beijing. And I don't know, as I'm driving to the airport, if I'm going to go one way or the other. As I get to the airport, I find out I need to go to a critical meeting in Seoul. So the Beijing ticket canceled, boom, done, and then go to Seoul. When I go to check in, they're like, sir, are you immigrating? 
And I'm like, no, well, then where's your visa? And I'm like, I don't have a visa. And they go, well, you've got a one-way ticket to Seoul. <laughs> and and I, then I'm trying to explain to them, don't worry, that'll get figured out later as I'm flying to Seoul where I'm going to go next. So all of that said, I think all of these roles put a great burden on people, but I have to tell you, the net is crazy positive. So the fact that I get to interact with people and cultures around the world, I get to see the broad face of our customers. I get to see the EMC field team everywhere. I get to see our partners. I get to see the VMware and Pivotal dynamic. And I get to see how the strategy either comes together or doesn't. I got to ask, how the hell does it go from something where you're managing a team of, let's say, 10 to 20 people? Maybe they're all in the United States. And then, boom, you've got one-way tickets to Seoul or Beijing, and you're not sure which one you're going to take. That was going to be my question too, Matt. I was going to even go one past. What would Chad say to his older self where uh, he was an individual contributor and accepted that first management job? So I think both those transition points, when you went from individual contributor to manager, and I think Matt's question is a great one, you're managing 10 people and then it's 4,000. Take us through that a little bit. (laughs) So if I could beat my younger self, the first thing I would say is, hey, Chad, I've invented a time machine. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. (laughs) In all seriousness, I would say be very mindful of what you want. I think people don't necessarily, and I certainly didn't, understand the various quid pro quos of the choices that I was making. Now, again, I really want to be clear for you guys and for everybody who's listening. I think it's awesome. I feel unbelievably privileged to be in my job. But I think that I didn't understand at the time some of the demands that that places on a person. And I saw the tip of it when I was leading the first group of people, which were 10 people. I needed to make a decision that basically meant that one of the people was going to be let go. When an organization is 4,000 people in size, that's happening all the time. And those stories are no easier. Or put another way, a thing that I never anticipated, that as the organization scaled up, would be as crazy as it is, is with big organizations, there are crazy tragedies like every day, like the Jim Ruddy thing, where a great friend and an awesome dude died in a a really unfortunate car accident. I was in Italy and I got the phone call from Fred Nix and it's just this unbelievable, I can't believe that just happened. Now, the thing that is actually pretty terrifying is stuff like that actually not, not, you know, that was a really tragic example, but there are similarly tragic examples that occur every single day. I'm, I'm sitting here kind of thinking through that because I think you're right. I, I am newly in a management role of I went from zero to, to five overnight, it seems like, and I'm going up to seven or eight. And it's to your point, you think, okay, yes, there will be people coming and going. Everybody won't be in the same role forever. It's about career path and kind of all the positive stuff, but absolutely spot on that life goes on too. And that as a leader, you kind of absorb a lot of what's going on through the organization. And that's that's a very interesting and sobering and important point, I think, that it's an emotional layer that maybe not everyone talks about in management. I'll give you another example that is like right in front of us right now. You know, we're a big global organization and the global dynamics, which have nothing to do with like a specific product or technology, but like what is going on in the GDP of a country like Greece or Spain, or for example, the dynamic between Russia and China and the Americas and the US. It means that you basically have got to make trade-offs, which unfortunately are not a reflection of the performance of the individuals at all but a reflection of macro geopolitical machinations. Yeah, it's it's not just about products. It's this entire overlay of economics and politics, both inside a corporation, but inside uh, around the globe. That's, that's massive. Now, here's the flip side, because that can sound really freaking depressing, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you made this job sound great so yeah. far, Chad. So, <laughs> so, so here's the flip side. For every tragedy that occurs every day, I get to see incredible personal, not work-related, but personal miracles. So uh, Brent Piotti, I did a webcast, the, the Hot Isle podcast with him when we were recording it. He's like, yeah, the baby's due any day. And boom, you know, two days later, he sends me the picture of his baby and his beautiful wife's in great shape. He's figured out it's his first kid. 
So in other words, for every personal non-work-related tragedy, you see an equal amount of personal miraculous upside. For every example where a geo is going through a tough time, I can give you, for example, the changes that I've seen in some of our teams around the globe in, uh, in Germany, as an example, in the Seattle and Pacific Northwest, where, man, those guys and gals are on, on just a tear of like engaging with great customers, not just around the traditional stuff, but the new stuff, and their business is booming. So you get to see like the good and the bad, and you have to kind of, how do I say it? It's not a matter of like letting it wash over you, because that means that you're not engaged in every moment, but you have to kind of let it <laughs> roll through you, <laughs> not wash over you, but roll through you and not be thrown off your game, your purpose by the good or the bad. You see an unbelievable amount of both. And then I think it's a duty, but a great honor to be able to hopefully steer the ship as much as I can to the benefit of a larger and larger set of people. Amy, I'm sure you feel the same way. And that was no different for me when I was leading 10 than when, I was, than when I'm leading 4,000. I had a conversation today, and somebody said this to me, and it seems so true, is I realize I think people have a perception of management that, you know, these people, quote unquote, work for you. But truthfully, it's you it's work the for them. It's the yes. <laughs> it's, complete, it's completely the inverse, right? My job is to make each person be able to be everything that they can possibly be. You know, that means getting as much bureaucracy and, and bullshit out of their way. It means where there's internal conflict, removing it. It means, for example, down to the lowest bit where we're updating our corporate standard laptops for SEs. How do technical people feel about their... About their Be agnostic to oh, it? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't care at all. <laughs> Literally, I've seen people go wacko. I, again, at, at EMC, everyone's paid well enough that they could go out and they could buy whatever laptop they want. <laughs> but if the corporation says, this is the corporate-issued laptop and thou shalt use it, literally people quit over that stuff. <laughs> yeah, they'll lose <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right? They lose it. So I'm now fighting with legal going hey, why do we force this? Why don't we basically offer the bring your own desktop variation? And they're like, well, what happens if an employee leaves? And I'm like, well, I've never used the corporate issued laptop you gave me. So are you going to fire me now? <laughs> and by the way, the whole executive staff works that way. So because they're all nerds like me, <laughs> right? You know, they're all using, like I'm using one of the new MacBooks and I've got a Surface Pro 3 here and and I'm like, the first thing I do is I connect to the VPN, boom, I download, and then I use the VDI image if I have to use it. Right? <laughs> so, Chad, is it really hard to keep the macro and the micro view at the same time? It seems like in some ways, I'll overgeneralize here just for the sake of argument, right? You're kind of a new generation of executive. I knew you through social and blogging and things like that as you were building out the EMC SE organization you'd already joined. And that's an interesting story of its, in and of itself. Uh, both the joining and the building, but you always were super hands-on and super focused with what, what was in front of you. So I don't know if you already had an end game in mind, but it seemed like you're always kind of focused on that. But you always struck me as somebody who was both do-it-yourself, you, you didn't have a, a bunch of admins doing stuff for you, and also kind of connected in a generational way to both your, your reports and also to technology and social and things like that. And I, I don't know, I would characterize it as something different than other, and again, I'll overgeneralize, maybe older generation executives that I've seen or worked with. Is that fair? Am I, am I, I making stuff up? So just to be clear, I did fix our Skype call today. <laughs> 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 There's absolutely a generational difference, and I'm sure there'll be a generational difference for the generation that will succeed me and, and all of us. You made a comment, John, of like, did I plan and blah, blah, blah. People have asked me that question, like, what was your career plan? And, got, and I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm a really bad person to ask because I never did it thoughtfully. I've deconstructed this because enough people have asked me. I always tried to do what I thought was the best for the customer and the company. And I didn't play political games. Politics are inevitable right? So politics are human nature. And in any organization, more than three people will exist. But there's a difference between understanding politics and being a politician. 
as soon as you become a politician, you are a bureaucrat. And the moment that happens to me, take me out to the back shed and shoot me. However, there were critical moments where ignorant, but not disrespectful, I spoke truth to power. And I basically said, this is what I think we need to do or not do. I did it with almost stupid self-consciousness. So it's low self-awareness, but not being a doink. Like everybody has seen people that there's good ways to do that and there's bad ways to do that. And if it's coming from a place that is honest, it's very difficult to actually combat. I was actually doing this women's leadership forum thing in, in St. Louis. And there was a woman on the panel and someone was saying, you know, how do you deal with politics and old boys networks, et cetera, et cetera. And her comment was be transparent and be authentic was the exact words that she used. Her comment, which I, I, I'm going to steal here. I wish I could remember her name. She basically said authenticity brings its own power because it's actually very difficult to combat. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're seeing a bunch of people with various positions on any particular topic and someone not only has got a brand, but also at that moment they're being very authentic and they're not thinking about themselves primarily, but based on what they think is the right thing to do, the only way you can beat them is actually on the merits of your argument. Personal attacks kind of bounce off them. So if I deconstruct it, there were basically like three different steps where at a critical moment, I spoke truth to power. Each time, unwittingly, I was doing it in front of a broader and broader audience. And if I deconstructed in each one of those, a few months later, something in my career basically resulted in a career expansion. Huh. So speaking up at the right time in your, your own authentic voice has been advantageous. Whether you plan for it or not, it just has led to good things. I'll give you a specific example, Matt. I don't know whether you were at EMC at the time. About eight years ago, EMC was having its its proverbial butt kicked in the marketplace by NetApp. And if you go back and you look at the stock market, basically NetApp's stock price was going up exponentially and EMC was stuck. And the analysts were all going, hey, EMC, when will you build one storage stack to do everything under the sun? it would be evil for me to kind of go back to those analysts and say, hey, what do you think about that strategy now? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story was, you know, that at the time I was basically saying, guys, the way to combat NetApp is not to focus on what's bad about NetApp, but to focus on what's good about us. And it's this, you know, focus on the positive, never go negative on the other guy. And we actually built our first structured rollout of like, how do you compete with NetApp in the NAS space, which was a somewhere where EMC had not been particularly effective. That technique worked and it broadened out and it started to roll out. There was a critical moment there where basically the person who was running global sales, um, which is Bill Scannell, brought me in to talk to their leadership and said, hey, tell us about how you're combating NetApp. And this started in mid-market, which is our smaller segment. They said, tell us how to do it in enterprise. And I basically said, guys, that I could tell you, but that's now a waste of time. Because the new battleground is not NetApp versus EMC in the NAS space. The new battleground is this VMware space where illustrating who's the best infrastructure player behind VMware is the new battleground. And they then went on to basically say that that wasn't right and that wasn't the the center of the known universe. And I said, I disagree. And I went on to vehemently argue in front of a room full of people who argued vehemently back. What I didn't know at the time is that EMC was looking at it going, saying, you know what, we really do need to be a better partner for VMware, and and that's going to need a whole company effort. It's not just a sales thing, it's a market thing, it's a product thing, it's the whole, the totality of it. And what I didn't know was that at that moment, with me arguing that a few people were in the back of the room listening and said, you know, this guy's got a passion for the topic. And it was funny, actually, I got a phone call from Billy a few weeks later, and I'm boarding a plane, and Billy goes... So, Chad, you know, you don't know this, but at the exec staff, we've been debating, you know, we need a VMware czar to help rally EMC to partner better with VMware. Now, again, John, this is when you and I first started to intersect. I immediately go, oh, and he goes, well, here are the five people that they've been debating. And immediately, again, not thinking things through, I go, this person would be good. You know, they've got a passion for it, blah, blah, blah. But this person would just not be a fit for these reasons. 
And Billy goes, Jed, you got to learn, man, when someone calls you with a call like this, you just should shut up and listen for a little bit, which is advice I've been getting my whole career. <laughs> nice, nice. So you basically got hired for a job without realizing you were being hired. He, he goes, basically, we've been debating it for months. And ultimately, Joe said, what about Chad for it? So I got the Mikey likes it promotion, right? But it was because I had a passion for it. I spoke out. I didn't do it out of a, you suck and I'm right. You know, it was... It was a very unconscious process is what I'm getting at. Now, John, you would ask the comment about like technologists, social leader. I don't see personally how anyone could decouple any of those things anymore. To jump in and pull on that thread a little bit, how do you maintain such a strong personal identity? And not saying that's in any way, I know it can be strange because I'm not at all saying it's a showboat or a negative way. I think we're all kind of reticent. And you're Canadian, so I would think you're exceptionally reticent to have that spotlight shined in that way. But how to maintain that sort of individual personality to continue to blog as an individual to that sort of thing, that that stuff that's kind of glue, individual contributor, personal stuff, while you do all the rest of this stuff. What are your practical tips for folks who are trying to manage time and, and get that all done? John, Matt, and Amy, I mean, how? so let me just bounce it back to you guys. You guys have got a huge social presence. You do podcasts, you do blogs. Do you view them as additional chunks of work that you have to do, or are they just a core part of what you do in your rhythm of your day? I don't know how not to. I, I gave up sleep, and I also, these are so therapeutic for me. This is like my graduate-level study of career path, org charts, this, that, and the other, so... I feel like I'm I'm doing some sort of graduate course at night when no one's paying attention. So, and what about you? Other, what about you, John? Sure, it's, it's got to be an integral part of what you do. Uh, it's so easy though, as management. When I was management, it's so easy to not give a crap about somebody else's laptop. Just be like, okay, you guys deal with it, like, and tell me what you guys. You know, it's it's easy to slough off the lower layers. And I'm not talking social here. I guess I'm just talking about caring about the issues of this of the individuals on your team. But uh, that's so easy to do, and you're not doing that. I mean, that's been part of our conversation. But John, I mean, come on. I'm sure you've had good managers and shitty managers in your life. Um, I was a terrible one, so that, maybe that's the reason I'm saying that. So, so I think you carry a bit of a burden, but the burden is an honor to carry. The burden means you need to care about those things if the frontline people are going to care about those things. And on the on the social media thing, Amy, I'm like you, and I'm sure like all of you guys, I don't draw a line or a distinction. I mean, sometimes my blogging falls behind versus being high action, but it, based on workload and stuff like that. But the key is, like, I look at it and I go, what I do in my blog is not only my genuine opinion and what's going on in my world right now, but it's also a form of executive communication. Huh. With my personal blogging, I've cut back and just focused on telling other people's stories or paying attention, more consuming than creating. And I'm with Amy on this one that just without doing it regularly, just the urge comes back that there there's just something pivotal to what I do in our industry that requires creation of content. And frankly, the other thing that I've thought is really kind of cool is that this like web of connection that exists, you know, transcends organizational boundaries. Like organizational boundaries are so stupid. (laughs) You know, they're a necessary evil sometimes for focus, right? So people have got common goals and common focus. But the reality of it is, is, is that all of our jobs are so horizontal that social is just a part of the fabric of how you maintain connectivity across a broader ecosystem than your own team. Great point. And uh, sort of takes us into our next point. I like to call them unicorns. Are unicorns hired or uh, is it learned behavior? And so can people adapt to this culture or is it innate to who they are? Do you have to hire someone because they're right for the culture or can they be trained and culturalized? Hmm, That's an interesting question, Amy. So I got to be honest with you. I actually really dig hiring people that are counterculture. So I call these people aliens. <laughs> like IT I, hippies. Well, so, so, so just, you know, that land into a team and shake it up just because their worldview is different. 
the most dangerous thing actually for I think any high tech or fast moving team is actually that you get a homogeneous culture and a homogeneous um, team psyche because it, it can feel really, really good. It can feel awesome. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you get hit by a truck and your lack of the equivalent of biodiversity and a broad gene pool means that you can get hosed really, really fast. That's a technical Canadian term, getting hosed. <laughs> That's a really interesting point. I know they people do all these studies about diversity. I totally get your point. I think different viewpoints are so crucial. What do you think it is that gels and holds people together to make I, people have the same goals and pull the same way? Now, that's that's actually a thing that I think is interesting. I think that if you, it is true that teams do have a culture and values, but people basically take culture and values to mean things that are really specific versus actually a little more generalized, right? So uh, again, I've been at EMC for a while now. We have a culture where we like to win and we like to celebrate winning. We have a culture that actually is very, you know, it's interesting. I, th I think it's not reflected in our external brand, but a culture that actually is very embracing of radical change. I think we can always do better <laughs> on many fronts. If you hired in somebody that was not motivated to win, they would not fit in culturally. However, the question is like, how do you make the definition of winning <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like the definition of wanting to win is, is, is really broad. If you put somebody into the EMC code team, their definition of winning is basically like a community picking up a chunk of open source code that we contribute. Yeah. No, I think that's an interesting right. point. I'm really fascinated by this. And I've always really respected you, Chad, for the culture that you seem to instill in the community that you're a part of. So I want to ask you even more basic of a question that might be tougher because it's vague of what actually is the culture of a group of people in an organization like the V specialists or just a chunk of the pre-sales team? Is it their processes? Is it what winning looks like in that communal belief in winning? Well, what is it? I think culture basically is a bit of an echo chamber of the things that we celebrate. <laughs> so, so, so what I mean by that, right, is like, um, and this is actually one thing that a leader has that an individual contributor, even with the power of social media can struggle with a little bit, right? Um, which is that basically you have a larger impact radius, <laughs> right? So, uh, when something occurs that you think is great and needs to be celebrated, um, and I'll give you just an example of both of those wins, right? Um, as a leader, you've got an incredible opportunity because you have a soapbox that you're standing on um, to be able to broadcast that, right? Now, by the way, impact, impact radius doesn't directly flow, flow from leadership. So, so, Matt, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a bit of a ramble answer, but hopefully it helps. Oh, I love it. Keep exploring. So. Um, the top echelon of an EMC SE is something called a principal, right? The principal, it's like a job grade, right? Which sounds, you know, boring HR and, and, and uh, you know, bureaucratic. But let me explain this a little bit more. It's basically an individual contributor that is paid both in compensation and in equity the equivalent to a director class job. And there's actually one job grade above that, which is a distinguished engineer, right? Who is a VP level grade. Now, the grades are, are interesting because basically they represent how big is your impact radius. So a director basically is assumed to have roughly around 100 direct reports, which means that they have a direct management impact radius of 100 people that they can actually lead to do great things or lead awry and go badly. And so we go, you know, being a director is important. Now, being a principal means that you're an individual contributor that has the same impact radius as a director. Okay. Are you with me so far? I'm with you. Yeah, no, it, it's actually a good one-to-one -one explanation. Keep going. So the principal selection process only occurs once a year. And uh, to give you an idea out of a population out of 4,000 this year, we selected a total of nine. It's rare. And into the funnel, we got 40. 
Now, this is very scary because basically these are your best employees that unfortunately you're going to say no to 31 out of 40, which is a huge bummer. But it's an important part of keeping the bar high. Now, when I was in APJ on that road trip, basically the, the APJ management team said, hey, we've got some difficult things that we need your help with, Chad, because none of the people that we put through the process got selected this time around. And they're hurting a little bit. So let's jump on a, uh, a webcast with, with video cameras so everyone can see each other and we can talk and talk about what did the selection panel do. And the selection panel is a set of SEs and NSE leaders across the, across the company. And why didn't they get selected? And a couple of them got really bent for reasons I understand because the feedback they got was you need to blog and tweet more. Mm. And they were going like, come on, that seems like a silly thing to, to penalize me for something that I really, really want to do. And we said, you know what, that, that was not the accurate feedback. The feedback was that to become a principal SE, you have to have a larger impact radius. Your impact radius needs to be the equivalent where you're impacting 100 people for every single thing you do versus one. It's not just good enough to be awesome in what you do as an individual contributor. You have to help others. Many ways of helping others exist. You can speak at public conferences. You can coach and mentor many. You can contribute to your local community. You can write books. You can blog. You can tweet. Those are all different forms of increasing your impact radius. And they kind of went, oh, I kind of see your point, right? Like that, that's an important part of the gig. I guess, I guess what I'm driving at is, is that to me, I think that culture flows from what we celebrate. Individuals and managers both have got an opportunity to actually have in today's society an equal impact radius. <laughs> Your impact radius allows you to magnify what you celebrate and therefore reinforce cultural attributes. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes, that makes a lot of sense, Chad. And it's powerful to think it all the way through because that's that balance of micro and macro because you have this macro view of how do people progress in the pipeline of their career in my organization, but also this micro of, well, well how does so-and-so feel about this? Like, where are they in this journey? What can they actually improve on specifically and not give them vague anecdotes of how a, a couple more tweets and they would have got a next bump in their pay? Like, that's right. not very helpful. Yeah, it's, it's important. So, and by the way, the, the thing of like what you choose to celebrate has to be your true personal values. You can't fake that. So that's that authenticity element, right? So <clears throat> the funny thing about it is I wrote that blog post about the, you know, EMC pre-sales manifesto principles when I got this gig a few years back. To tell you the truth, those have been my core values throughout my whole career. I would hope that not through enforcement or through the selection of unicorns, but rather through the celebration of things that are great, you know, I can amplify using my impact radius, which flows through what I do in social media, but also through my management structure. Those values then become cultural values of the organization as a whole. I love it. Agreed. But by the way, guys, if you think that I or anyone is doing it this consciously, I think you vastly overestimate. No, no this, is, this is a postmortem. So here's the flip side question. So what can you do when you see the values? And, and again, I, I know you as being incredibly positive, competitive, but fair. What do you do when you see either people or an organization not going in that right direction? How do you know when you either need to trim? Is it a bad apple spoils the barrel? Is it, can you turn a culture around? What are your thoughts on when things aren't going the way they need to? A bad apple, particularly in a leadership role, can absolutely spoil the barrel. It's very challenging because actually the, the trickiest spot is sometimes those people are wildly successful for transient time periods. I, I'm sure that we can all think of many examples in our career. In my opinion, what I've always tried to do, Amy, when that happens, if I'm in a position where I, I actually have got the authority to make the decision is in those times, it's important to make changes and try to make them as quickly as you can. Again, I won't claim that I've done that perfectly, not even by a long shot. 
and I'm sure there'd be lots of people uh, listening that would second guess, and and I invite their second guesses. <laughs> and frankly, if you have feedback, I'm an easy dude to find. <laughs> Send me a DM on Twitter at s a k a c c. Right? I would love to hear about what I could do better. But if it's in my authority, I've universally found that if it's a person who's climbed to a senior leadership role and they're a bad apple, it's very difficult to coach that behavior out. When they're a frontline individual, that's a beautiful uh, learning and coaching opportunity for that particular individual. Where it's somewhere that's not in my direct area of accountability, I got to be honest with you, I've always tried to follow the technique of reach out to the person individually and talk to them and tell them where I disagree. And frankly, if it's, if it's a small thing, then that's probably where it begins and where it ends. If it's something that's more material and, and it's still going on, you know, then you have to work across, across an organization. You know what I mean? I've seen us as a company say and do things that I don't think are right. And I try not to sit idly by. But at the same time, I got to tell you, I've often found that when you double click on it and you actually find out the other person's perspective, very often there's a, there's a side to it that you didn't anticipate or you didn't understand. So as this cool new Pope would say, don't be so judgy, judgy. <laughs> <laughs> he probably tweeted that. There's a man who can be an individual contributor and a leader at the same time. <laughs> so, so by the way, like, isn't that kind of cool? Like you can see, yeah, it's an interesting example. I mean, like I'm not a Catholic. There, again, this is not the right time or place to, to get into uh, people's belief systems and, and religious worldviews, right? But take a look at what he's doing, both in terms of what he does with his staff, the Cardinals, right? You can see that he's actually moved out some people that he would have probably viewed as a bad apple, not reflecting the cultural values he wants to uh, represent. However, what do you think creates a greater echo of the culture? those actions or the actions that he actually does as an individual and demonstrates to the world a set of values. That's a great point. That's a great point. And it is actually, I think, a very on-point example. Transitioning a little bit and picking up a thread. Transitioning? That, uh, you want a bigger transition than me calling out the Pope as an example? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the Pope's <laughs> example is complete win. <laughs> this is the beauty of podcast editing. We can jump right in at any point. because. Yeah. I can't resist while we have you on the line. Extremely practical. But when you're mentioning, you know, you've got two plane tickets, you don't know where in the world you'll go. We've got a lot of people who listen who are road warriors in some form or other in their lives. Give us the Chad Sackage practical guide to road warrioring. Can you give us some of your tricks and tips? How do you do it and stay healthy and upright and keep on going? It's really not easy. Here are some common things that for me work. Number one, as a human being, I can only sprint for about a week to two weeks tops. And a sprint for me translates into plus or minus 12-hour time zone differences coupled with four, five, six nights in a row of four to five hours of sleep, right? AKA VMworld, (laughs) right? Right? Uh, After that, I have have to recover. And if I don't pause to recover, I get sick. And then when I get sick, I'm, I'm useless to everybody around me. There's a ton of like little tricks of the trade. Like the stupid but obvious thing that noobs don't get is you can live off of a rollerboard suitcase for two to three weeks at a time. The way that you do that is hotels can do laundry. <laughs> you, you know, you, you just pack light but uh, don't shortchange yourself. The other thing that for me I've found is, is uh, really important is working out. So, you know, as you can tell from my incredibly buff physique, you know, I'm an elite athlete. No, I, you know, it's not, a, it's not about necessarily being an elite athlete or being buff. I've just found that working out in the morning clears my head, and that's never more true than when I've gone through, you know, five-hour-plus time zone change. And true story, I can uh, attest that it was a little bit of a double dog dare, but I have seen Chad bench press a human being <laughs> bigger than me and Brenda tied together <laughs> just just because. I come from stocky stock. Uh, 
it was a. Uh, I thought in between your travels, that man is absolutely doing some weightlifting. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then frankly, really importantly, I mean, you know, all of us have got um, different circumstances with family or friends. For me, what's really important is to just have a constant dialogue with my wife. You know, is this, is this working for you? Is it working for me? The pool boy bills are astronomical. I can't figure out what's going on, but (laughs) <laughs> no, you know, in, in all seriousness, you know, you got to have a good constant dialogue about like, it, is everyone getting what they need, right? And then a ton of FaceTime with the kids whenever I can. And then the other thing is that when I am home, trying to unplug and be fully engaged in my family. Not easy, but that's the balance. No, that's quite a good, good list. I like it. So... I've got to ask you my other favorite question. If you could give one piece of advice to someone to not make a mistake or to do something differently than you had done, don't do this, what would you tell them? I would have taken bigger risks earlier. Interesting. What do you think kept you from doing that? In my case, I would have said it was a little bit of ignorance of the world of possibility rather than fear. And then what occurs is, you know, you start to think about consequence too much. It's, it's a cliche, right? But like no one ever on their deathbed, you know, is, is thinking about the things that they did. They're thinking about the things that they didn't do. Life is a crazy, beautiful adventure. Every day is, is an awesome event. <laughs> it gives you an opportunity and to do something awesome. So if I had to go back, I'd say, you know, that would be one thing. There was one really interesting thing in my career, Amy, which was a total screw up that if I could unwind, I would have done slightly differently. And it was because I wasn't as aware of um, organizational dynamics as I hope I am now, (laughs) Uh, knock on wood. Um, (laughs) When I got that VMware czar gig, Joe said, so Chad, what do you think you're going to need? And I said, well, a big part of this is the intersection of VMware and EMC technologists, and we're going to need to quickly ramp up a team of people who later on became known as the V-specialists. You know, again, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I said, hey, you know, an easy way to find these people is people who are online, social media presences, and we've done something that now I, I see lots of competitors and new startups imitating, which is flattery, you know, the highest form, right? Which is basically to go out and aggressively target people who have got big impact radiuses. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, again, people were like, oh, Chad's scooping up everybody so that he has a monopoly of like voice, right? <laughs> it, was, it, it was known as Chad's army at the time. Right. Now, the thing that I didn't realize is that the culture of separateness actually had the seeds of its own destruction laid in there. Forgive me again, guys, for a long-winded answer. The easiest way to create a culture and a cult um, is to create the values of that culture in opposition to something. There's them and there's us. This is what they believe. This is what we believe, right? It's very, very art of war, and absolutely. And inherently, by the way, in the tactical timeframes... That is the easiest way to rally a team. The tricky thing is that intrinsically in the long term, it, cr- it creates enemies on so many fronts. And there came a critical point where, in essence, the V-Specialists kind of won. In other words, EMC and VMware were working much better together. And uh, I got selected to lead all the SEs. And everybody went, oh, geez, here's what's going to happen. Chad's going to replace all of the SE leaders with the V-Specials. The V-Specials were like, yeah, we're going to take over the world. And I'm like, no. And there's a much more complex constituency here at play. And then all of a sudden what we started to discover was, ooh, this is a bit hairy because we had created a dynamic where there was an asana-them psychology, even within the walls of EMC. There was a critical moment where, to tell you the truth, being very Machiavellian about it, I needed to switch gears in the team culture. And I didn't. I didn't do it until it was too late. Now, where we stand now, it's been a few years since that event, right? Many of the V specialists are in broad leadership positions across all three theaters. Many of them have gone on to great careers within EMC and pre-sales and in other spots. 
Many of them have moved into different parts of the Federation and some of them have left. But the transition was a lot bumpier because of this little thing that I did unintentionally. Wow. And, and the thing that is interesting is like some people, you know, I think got unfairly burnt through that process and I bear that responsibility. I think it created more organizational bumpiness during that transition than could have been the case. By the way, it's really interesting, like you can see in startups, many of the startups, by definition, to rally a startup, you know, you create an us and them. We are the revolutionaries, you know, and we're going to overthrow the regime. What happens if the next day you're acquired by the regime? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've seen that a lot of times. That makes some interesting managerial conversations the next day. Especially if you are somebody with a big impact radius and you've been beating the drum. Uh, in a certain way, and then you switch jobs. But Chad, I was kind of curious also, so you talked about the culture of the the group that you made, but also was there an impact outside that group in terms of jealousy and things like that? Did some of that come to play? Well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily realize it, but basically... We talk a lot about rewarding individual contributors and making a platform for these exceptional people. But we haven't really talked about that dynamic at all, and I'll shut up now. So, so as an example, it's inherent that in any complex SE org like ours, you're going to have a lot of specialists. It's inherent. You've got a portfolio of technologies. No single human can know it all. And what that means is it creates a weird dynamic where the specialists view themselves as special. Hey, it's in the name, <laughs> right? We're special, which then makes oh, – let's use the uh, – if you're a military type – we're elite forces. Everybody else is a grunt, right? Meanwhile, the generalist goes, guys, I'm there from the beginning of when we engage with the customer to the ultimate end where we win or lose. And ultimately, the customer's looking to me as the trusted expert. You're just coming in for a little bit of support here or there. So in other words, the analogy isn't one of a GP versus a, a specialist, you know, neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon, Right. It's like a general contractor versus a subcontractor. All of those analogies break down because fundamentally the whole thing doesn't work if both don't work. But it's very easy to create actually a perception that says, like, uh, and again, I'm just using an example that's close to my heart, but you can apply it to almost anything, that the account SE gets the award when you get the win. But the specialist gets called out for doing something you know, awesome and unique. The trick is is that the better way to do it is to call out actually how both of those were integral to the win, number one. Mm. Number two, um, like, so if you're going to celebrate, it, it, it has to happen across those functions. And frankly, the reality that everyone knows is that it, it includes services and partners and service providers and, and a complex ecosystem. Like it, it's, it's, it takes an extra step to just think through like who were all the people who played a role in this win? because it's a team win. The second thing that we realized is that we made a mistake by only rolling out a lot of the training to the V specialist proper. And then we realized eventually we need to actually roll that out unfiltered and unedited to a broader ecosystem because there's other people that want to know that stuff and get access to that stuff. So part of it actually is to is to not get hung up on organizational boundaries and functions in terms of how you even communicate. So we've created miners and, and, and other vehicles to like get out to broader constituencies, but that's a, that's a reflection of the fact of don't go too native. Avoid the us and them psychology at every possible step that you can. It does sound like be careful of institutionalizing a little bit of hierarchy because it can be unsustainable and it can carry other risks. And I'm actually thinking about a conversation for anyone listening. We had with Frank Deniman on this podcast a long while back talking about the concept of the velvet rope and when you're on one side of it and how, how it can start to feel and how one behaves as opposed to being on the other side. I think those are just really very insightful, insightful observations about culture and team and organization and what is sustainable, the quick versus what you can live with. I think hierarchy is at best a necessary evil. At best. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I literally see no difference between me, Joe Tucci, and a frontline individual in the field. 
I was going to throw a Pope joke in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the Pope, I got I to gotta tell you, if I saw the guy, I'd, I'd want to basically go, I don't know if you're allowed to do this, but I'd like to buy you a drink. You're doing a great job. You almost make me want to become a Catholic. <laughs> and I mean that not as a joke, but like that is awesome, man. <laughs> you keep going, dude. <laughs> I love it. I'd want to high five him. Chad, really, really appreciate your thoughts and insights here today. If anybody wants to send you that DM or look for your blog or you mentioned a podcast, where all can people catch up with you in the virtual world? So uh, virtualgeek.typepad.com. Everyone keeps telling me, Chad, you got to port it to WordPress. And yes, I know I need to. Virtualgeek.typepad.com. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, it's actually, I find that my Maslow's hierarchy of communications is I get a lot more emails than I get DMs on Twitter. So if you send me a DM on Twitter, I'm at S-A-K-A-C-C. If you want to reach out to me there, it's pretty easy to find me. The one thing I'll give is a warning. Again, like Amy, this is the sort of stuff that you just don't expect, right? Warning. When you read my blog posts and when you follow me on Twitter, it's going to be a mishmash of technology, EMC stuff, and personal stuff. And the same thing is true of the blog. And if you don't like it, you don't have to read it and you don't have to follow. It was fascinating. On top of all the other stuff we talked about, I'm one of the two executive sponsors for the LGBT community inside EMC, which I think is cool and I'm happy to support community in any way I can. And I wrote a blog post where all I did was basically put out there the internal communication that we did during Pride Month. And man, that blog post, the comments I got on that were fascinating. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you don't realize that while we all get along in technology, when you start intersecting that with other uh, genres of belief, it uh, it can it can get heated and confusing. So so and, and by the way, again, I'm not begrudging anyone of their position that they're going to take, so long as it's within the law. You don't need to read my blog, and if I lose you as a reader, I'm sorry. But, you know, yeah. Oh, yes. We're you're following our number one rule of uh, social, which is be a human. So uh, go you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Amy. You got it. We all got to be who we got to be. Exactly. So with that, thank you very much again for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we will see you all next time. If you enjoyed the show, then be sure to share it with a friend. Tell the Pope. Give us a a like or a star. And until (laughs) next time, Geek Whispers out. You've been listening to the Geek Whisperers podcast, where we bring social media and community to enterprise IT. You can listen to all the episodes at our website, geek-whisperers.com, or check us out on Twitter, Facebook, or iTunes. Your hosts were John Mark Troyer, Amy Lewis, and Matthew Brender, better known on Twitter as Jay Troyer, Comms Ninja, and MJ Brender. See you next week. This thing, this thing is freaking awesome. Mind, hashtag mind blown.